Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and a, a very warm welcome to this uh, session with George about his book, The Burning Land, which, uh, if you haven't yet read, is the most fantastically pacey thriller set against a place that you know very well, South Africa. Uh, when did you first, first go to South Africa? I, um, the first time was the Mandela years, the presidency. So um, uh, that was, um, you know, he, just after his election and my job was to cover the new, new South Africa. Um, and of course it was, it was an amazing time to be there, a time of real optimism. Um, you could kind of almost touch it. I mean, I remember um, we, were, we were there when South Africa won the World Cup and, you know, when Nelson Mandela put on Francois Pinar's jersey and you got this, this cauldron, Ellis Park, which is like this cauldron of Africanodon, you know, and 80,000 people screaming Mandela, Mandela, and Nelson, Nelson. It was an amazing time to be there. And, um, I remember driving out that evening and um, our kids were sort of leaning out of the car window and uh, it was such a time of optimism of course uh, this book is really about how that dream didn't quite turn out the way um, Nelson Mandela hoped it would. It seems a long time ago doesn't it when you when it, you read this book and when you read the news of, of what's happening in South Africa now? Well um, you know you only got to wind the tape back I don't know how many of you watch watch the news BBC news but you know six seven weeks ago when um, I think it was about that when former President Zuma was um, had to appear in well for contempt of court um, among other things, um, and there were all those riots and um, there's, there's someone thinking about adapting this book for for this for, for television, and he said, "I wish we'd taken our cameras out then because it actually seems like you know it, it's playing out already, um, and and there is unfinished business mm. in South Africa." Um, and although this book is set in South Africa, I think there's unfinished business globally. I mean, it's about a kind of new colonialism, if you like, that I think is about to happen and is happening, and which is that as climate change takes hold, as we in the rich world um, know that we're going to be want to ensure our food supplies and our supply lines, um, as we as the rich world, I say we. I mean, I wasn't born here, but. Um, um, as the rich world has always done, will go out and do whatever it takes to get land elsewhere. And that's where the burning land comes in, that, that it's uh, people are, I mean, this is, by the way, already happening. And I try to do it as a reporter, as a story. It's quite secretive and quite difficult to do. But there are people already, and companies, countries, venture capitalists, already buying land in Africa to ensure that when climate change happens and, and food supplies get tricky, they have land in the most arable continent on the planet, which is, which is Africa. And at a time when we, we tear ourselves to pieces over the legacy of empire and the legacy of, of colonialism, this is a repeat, isn't it? You call it a new carve-up of, of the continent. It is. I mean, and, and again, as I say, um, I think uh, ac there are some academics who've been calling it a, a, a new carve-up. And the new entrance, actually, if you like. I mean, it, it's no longer, the, you know, the Brits and the Belgians and the French. I mean, there's, there is, of course, the Chinese who are, who are also in, involved. And um, um, it, it is going on and, it, and it's happening. And um, I, I think this will happen, and I hope it happens. There will be people, uh, the kind of people I talk about, Kahiso, Lindy, um, Shami, these uh, people who will, activists, 
who will oppose it and be um, perhaps more successful than those who tried to oppose the colonialism in the first place. Yeah, and there are, uh, at the heart of this book, I suppose you could say six activists, um, four of whom are involved in a, in a secret group campaigning against land which was owned by white farmers that's now being sold to, to international organizations rather than being given to, to people who, who might have a, a fairer claim to the land. Uh, one of those, uh, Kegizo, grew up with, with Lindy, who's a white South African living in London with a lot of baggage about what the country means to her. She's sent to investigate the death of Lesidi. Now, that's where the book starts, with his murder. Lucidi's father was a great freedom fighter. He was, he was there amongst the great names uh, of, of the, the Robben Island prisoners and others who did so much to, to bring about change in South Africa. But money has rather distracted him. Well, I, what I was trying to do in this book is, I think we, I say we, I'm assuming you know, you're the same as me, the sort of progressive, vaguely liberal, you know, that we, we, it's a book know. festival, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm safe. That, that we, um, we kind of expect that freedom would mean these people all end up being saints. And of course, freedom is the freedom to be rich, to be jealous, to be, to be envious, to want you know, a Rolls Royce or a Bentley or a Mercedes, do all the things that white people used to do in South Africa. So Josiah Motlanchi, yes, in this book, is a fictional character, obviously, but um, was on Robben Island uh, with, with Mandela and was once so bony and thin it would hurt to sit in the, on, on, the, on the benches in Robben Island and is now one of these so-called black diamonds. Um, and, yeah, has become a very sort of corpulent, rich man. And it's interesting because Lindy, this character, whose parents were white South African exiles in London, she goes back... And she's the kind of thing I might have been stupid enough to say at one point and say, she's talking to someone and say, yeah, but you know, getting rich wasn't part of the liberation struggle. And the, the taxi driver with whom she's having this conversation says, ah, oh, so miss, you only want the, the white people to be rich, do you? Black people can't rich, you know, which is a rebuke. And it's about identity and, and what freedom means and what we think freedom means. And we kind of impose it on black people. Um, you talk about this sort of smoke and mirrors relationship between the people ruling South Africa and the people of, of South Africa. Because I, I, I guess the rulers would say they're doing all of this for the good of the people, even if it's also lining their pockets. I mean, and I, and I think in a, in a way, Petra, we, it, it's set in, in South Africa because, as you said, I know the country incredibly well. But I could have set it in, in Brazil if, 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 I'd, if I'd lived there for four years, or Indonesia if I'd lived there for four years. Um, and... and I think everywhere there is this kind of disconnect between the political elite and, you know, these, these are people who once said, you know, they would distribute the wealth uh, of the nation amongst the people and now they just distribute the wealth amongst themselves. And, and, and this book is really what happens when, when, when that gap becomes too far and people begin to sort of say, actually, maybe we should do something about this. We should start taking direct action. Um, what is direct action and how do you control direct action is what this book is about because you know th there are a bunch of idealists and things get out of hand as they can very easily and, and often do get get out of hand let's tell me more about the character of, of kegizo who who grew up with with lindy kegizo's mother was lindy's parents maid yeah so um 
it's, it's a device, it's a conceit if you like, and it, it, it helped me get the story done. But um, so Kahiso is, is the house worker um, son, um, liberal white South Africans, one's a journalist, one's a human rights lawyer. Uh, of course, they, they treat Kahiso like, like their son. Um, they then are among the kind of white people who get banned and they, they, they go off um, uh, into exile to, to Britain. Um, and you may know some of them. There are lots and lots of South white South Africans came here. Kahiso is, is an idealist. He's, um, he wants to make something of this new South Africa. He really believes in, in the rainbow nation. And he's brought to this position of being a saboteur very reluctantly. He's the reluctant saboteur. Um, his job, actually, you know, he's a high flyer in the government, writing policy papers, but you can see he's not really reaching the rural poor and then goes off and starts working uh, with the rural poor in, in, in the outer fringes of South Africa in a province called Mpumalanga. And, and that's where he's working and that's where he realises uh, reluctantly that maybe he has to do more um, than just try and hold meetings between white farmers and, or in this case, now black farmers, actually, because black people are beginning to own farms and their farm workers and, and setting up cooperatives that actually one might have to intervene w w with sabotage. And, and as if to illustrate the complications or the, the, the different relationships between people, he gets criticised at one point because he grew up in this, alongside this white family, because they paid for him to go to school. Therefore, there are questions over where his thinking sits and where well, his outlook sits. It's it sort of, I touched on it just now. So um, in, in this clandestine cell, um, there's, there's Francois, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a white man. He's kind of atoning for what his parents were. His parents were privileged white people. In fact, they, they made their money selling meals ready to eat for the South African army. So there's plenty of guilt there, but it, it's easy for him. He's just got a term for being white, so that he's fine. Um, Kahito, as I say, is, is, a, is a reluctant idealist who comes to sabotage. There's a, a woman called Shami Mir, who's an Indian South African. She feels it in her gut. She really does. Um, but her father was on Robben Island. She, she, she is, is the person who, who leads this, this group. And she never explicitly says it, but you kind of get the impression that if, if activism meant the odd bit of violence, then so be it. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot, forgot the train, train of thought. Well, the, 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 the difference between the, the characters, the four yes. characters so, in, the, and, in the group. And, 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 and within this cell, there is this tension between, between Shami Mir, this, this, this fire in the gut woman, and, and the idealist Kahiso. And she, her, her, her worst rebuke, if you like, is the thing that we value most. Again, you know, we like a cosy story and this idea of a black boy brought up by white parents who treat him as an equal. And her rebuke is, you know, you may have black skin, mate, but your brain is white, you've been brainwashed. And I try to, try to work through those kind of um, identity issues. And it's something he's aware of too. Um, uh, where she doesn't, she's not encumbered by any of that. She can just be that black person, define herself as black, define herself as an activist and just get on with it. You're going to read a bit of, of Kegiso's if, if I may, yeah. if I may, Petra. And, and, and this is a, just set it up for us. It's a, it's a very interesting moment of reflection. Yeah, so um, the thing about setting off, um, and I know this because I, I knew people in the ANC, the African National Congress, Nelson Mandela's 
party before they became government. I used to meet them in places like Lusaka, um, uh, Luanda in Angola, Maputo in Mozambique. So I'm talking about the 80s when they were activists. Um, and and, and they, ha they have a dream of the, of the kind of thing they, they want to create. And actually activism, uh, sabotage is a messy business. You, you set something off, people go freelance and they start doing things that you don't necessarily want them to do. The ANC wasn't always in control. Some of the massacres, some of the atrocities were not ordered, they just happened. And this is what happens for Cahita, this, this clandestine cell set up a series of sabotage, but people think, oh, well, why, you know, it doesn't have to be sabotage, maybe we can, we can knock somebody off or whatever. And um, this is what's happened, that it, it leads to a, um, there's a murder, as you say, the book starts in the murder, with a murder, the authorities desperate to shut this whole thing down, blame a migrant, uh, a Mozambican, and, and then there's bouts of xenophobia. And so you have this ca character, Kahisa Rapabani, the reluctant saboteur, sitting down quietly one, uh, one moment and thinking, how did this happen? How did my idealism end up with, with all of this? And so he's, he's reflecting on that, really. Um, so here we go. Um, so his job had been, uh, when, he's, when he's not being a saboteur, as I said, as, as a, a work in a cooperative, trying to bring farm deals, you know, getting white farmers and, and rich black farmers to give part of their land to their workers, set up deals and so on. He remembered the time when he'd helped to organise an end-of-harvest braai, South Africa's version of a barbecue on a farm right on the border with Mozambique. It was the first year of a profit-sharing scheme that Cahiso had helped put together. The area had been blessed with good rains and a bountiful crop. That evening, as a blood-orange sky had turned purple, as shadows grew longer and fainter till they just seeped away into the soil, one of the migrant workers had brought out his mbira, a traditional handheld musical instrument, a finger piano, as some called it. Kahisa had sat on the edge of the group, entranced by this vision of a different future. The farmer and his wife, Afrikaners both, sat near the fire. On the other side of the circle, their children huddled next to the housemaid and some of the workers' children. An old man, roomy eyes staring into the embers, pulled at a zol, a homemade cigarette spiced with the comforting fragrance of dacha. Women spread polyester blankets over their bare legs and young men shared the last few bottles of beer. Calloused thumbs plucked at the metal tines of the umbira, shaped like the flat handles of tablespoons, and picked out a tune that had been written in another century in the great language of the coast, Swahili. Nobody understood the words, but all were moved by the ballad, the lament of a young suitor who knows he will not wed his angel his malaika, for want of a good fortune. Kahisa had looked across at the farmer and was sure he'd seen the man's eyes well up with a tenderness so far removed from the caricature of his people. The morning, he knew, would expose again the starkness of his country's struggle to find a middle ground between the great wealth and great poverty. But for that evening, under that deep and star-studded African sky, Kahiso let himself dream, yes, dream, dream of another country, 
one in which hope triumphed over despair and idealism scored a victory over cynicism. Now, the man who believed in idealism and persuasion was about to be eclipsed by the saboteur who resorted to the insidious power to destroy. It was the unsettling effect of being defined by your least attractive feature. It's a beautiful passage, that. And it seems, to, it seems to reflect something that you must have thought so many times when you were living in South Africa, but subsequently about, about the continent in general, the potential, the, the, the idea of what could be, and then somehow the failure to, to deliver it when people are let down. I mean, I, th I think one's got to be careful, and I hope um, that I'm not responsible for this, though I suspect I am, because I mean, the, the nature of the, 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 the news business is that I only ever went. You probably... Uh, those of you see me as a seen me as a reporter, as a foreign correspondent, you know, you only go to places when it's chaotic. You know, I always thought I'd write a book. I'd go back to to, to to Liberia, to Sierra Leone, to to Kinshasa, um, uh, to Sudan, to Somalia, and write a book about you know what happens afterwards when things when things start going well. Um, and the truth is, though I may not have con con conveyed this in my reports, is that in all this chaos, there is too um, great resilience, great power, great tenderness. Um, and people often sometimes ask you, you know, what do you remember? And yes, I interviewed Nelson Mandela, but you know, weirdly, he, that's not the thing I remember most about my time. I remember um, a woman called Dilo Dolo, and she was. Um, in Mali, and I'd gone there because th there was a, a, an impending drought. And she lived up in the Banjigara Hills. She called it a friend of mine, Sarah. <laughs> I hope I've got this right, Sarah. A friend of mine is an anthropologist who did, did lots of work there. But anyway, this, this woman, she lived up on the, on the hills, and, but her, her field was, was down at the bottom of the valley, and it was the third year of a drought. And, Every day she'd go down this hill, and every day, with a kind of rusty old hoe, she'd dig away at the hard, unyielding earth. And every day she'd sort of say to herself, this year, this year will be different. This year the rain will come. This year my crops will yield something, and I will grow. I'll have a harvest, and I'll be able to sell stuff. And with what I have, I will then send my, send my, my children to school. And it's the most powerful image I remember of that, that, that this, this, in the most desolate and difficult of times in, in Africa, um, but also in, in, you know, in Asia and in South America when I've been there, I've been welcomed with a, with a warm heart and an open hand. Mm. So I don't want to give this, I mean, although this picture is about the things that go wrong, um, if I love Africa, it is because of the resilience and the power and the beauty of its people. Mm, mm, mm. And that school is still happening. That yes. That's what people want, their yeah. children to have a better education, yeah. a better life, and so on. There's an epic quality to this, to this book, as well as something very intimate around these six people. There's a sort of filmic description of, of moments of sheer horror. The, 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 the Mozambicans who have been turned upon uh, and blamed for, for, for the death of, 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 of Lucidi, the, the, the young man. Uh, and uh, the, the sort of horror of, of a group of people who had nothing, who came to try and make a little bit more, 
being pushed out of a country, their market stalls burnt out, their suitcases broken open as they get on board the last bus to, to cross the border. It's a, it's a frightening scene you, you paint, it's but not an unusual one. Not an unusual one. And, and, and you know, xenophobia, is, um, it can happen anywhere. Um, you know, this is anti-migrant thing. And for those of you who don't know, South Africa is like the magnet. I mean, a bit like Europe is a magnet for people now leaving Afghanistan or, or indeed Africa uh, and our own country. Um, South Africa is, is, is a magnet and it pulls and, and uh, Mozambicans, uh, lots of the domestic workers so-called in, in South Africa will have come from Zimbabwe, Mozambique and, and so on. And they're easy to pick on when things go wrong and there have been bouts of um, xenophobia. As I was just, as this book came out actually a couple of years ago, there was one exactly that happened and, and there were food shortages and suddenly someone blamed, you know, a Mozambique and that was that. And, and, and people started, started um, a, a, a attacking them. And, and I think what I was trying to speak to then is something that, you know, I've I, I been a journalist for 40 years and a reporter as a foreign correspondent for, you know, 25. And people say, what, what lesson did you learn? And I think the one lesson I learned, that more than anything else that stands out, is that this thing we call civilization, you know, is about this, this deep. It, it, it's, it's wafer thin, and it really doesn't take much to, to persuade people that they start becoming ugly and unkind. Uh, and, and some politicians are capable of doing that. And I don't exempt our own country. I mean, I hope it never gets to the stage that the kind of thing that I'm talking about, but it's so easy to do. Um, it's such a fragile thing, civilization, and we need, to, we need to nurture it. It's a flower, you know, brush up against it too, um, too hard and the petals will start falling off. And it was that that I was trying to, mm. trying to sort of um, um, get people to think about. Mm. Mm. One very minor character in the book fascinated me, Mr. Patel, who runs a general store in, in, <laughs> in a town where uh, uh, Lindy and, and Kigiso find themselves uh, holed up and investigating the city's death. And the role of the, the, the people from the Indian subcontinent in South Africa, but right across Africa, has been fascinating in terms of support and mercantile trade and so on. He, he's kind of not interested in the politics. He, basically just wants to get on with running his business. He knows things could be better. He knows things could be worse. He just wants to kind of plow his own, his own furrow. You see, the Asians have had an had a interesting history in, um, in, um, in, in Africa. Um, and yet again, I mean, a lot, you know, it, it, it kind of starts with Britain because um, I think, what was it, 1807, we, we um, uh, stopped the slave trade in 1834. I think, actually, slavery itself was <clears throat> um, stopped, banned, and then by 1836, Britain invented something else. It was called indentured labour, which is another way of getting cheap labour. Capital always finds a way of finding labour at its cheapest, and a lot of Asian Indi Indians, in this case, were brought over to to East Africa first, and then they drifted across the continent, and they became traders and they became very good at it and made, made, made money out of it. And they began to play that game where, you know, if they had to, to grease a palm, that's what they did. And, and I bring it up because actually 
he, he's not he's not that he's not a, he's not immoral he's amoral he does what he needs to do and Africa uh, is full of people like that who just get on you know and, and so Lindy confronts him and say why aren't you you know might you rail against this and I say must I rail you know my grandfather was in the Congo and the same thing happened to him and he was being asked for money and, and I just wanted to 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 kind of show that it isn't just black and white actually and someone someone he doesn't like orders a case of a case of scotch and as he says well i could just say no i'm not going to serve you because i don't approve of you but actually tomorrow it's life. i'd have to close my shop yeah and then who suffers yeah it's the people who tra who, who come and shop in my in my, my my little kiosk so yeah um it isn't easy it's a messy business opposition and you have to work your way through it as best you can um i'd like to think that the land collective, this, this clandestine cell, um, are in the end, you will regard them, if you read this book, and I hope you do, um, you will regard them as, as people involved in, in a noble uh, endeavor. Mm. Mm. Um, you've written two fascinating books of memoir. Uh, uh, this is your first novel. Was it something you, you, you'd been thinking about for a long time, or, or how, how did, what, what attracted not, you about fiction? Bluntly, I suppose, was um, the thing about journalism is you have to have the <laughs> you've got to go out. You, you've got, and if it's TV journalism, you know you've got to go out, find the thing you want to film, film it, uh, make sure assess it, make sure it's true, make sure it's a fact, and then report it. So l the land story, for example, was one that I tried to do, but I could never get close enough to film it. I thought, well, bloody hell, I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll write fiction. And, uh, and if you did film it, you'd have to tell it in three minutes. That's yeah, the, that's the exactly. Other. So here I could tell the truth, and that's the thing, isn't there? There's, there are facts, and people use facts in lots of different ways. Um, you know, we've got it now in our country, you know, with the, the shortages and the roll haulage. You know, is it Brexit? Is it COVID? You know, and some people will use one set of facts to prove it's about Brexit, another lot will use factors to prove it's really about COVID. And then there's the truth. Mm. And for me, it didn't seem to me such a leap um, really to go from journalism to, to, to fiction, because to me, it was doing the same thing. It was, it was searching for the truth. Um, and, and I think that's what this book is about. It's, it's what I consider anyway, to be, to be the true state of affairs. And I sense reading it, there was a real relish on your behalf about, f about being able to write dialogue, oh, being able to create characters, being able to find the, the backdrops that would place these characters and, and, I mean, and help their story develop. I mean, there are two things. I mean, it was absolute liberation. I mean, I don't know if any of you watched the news at six, but I mean, there's another book coming, which is all the things I would have liked to have said to you on the news at six. Instead of some of the bland things. Uh, well, not, they're not bland, actually, so I mustn't. Um, Just be careful. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have a heavy responsibility, impartiality, and it's a difficult thing to do sometimes. Um, and, and we can have an argument you know, about what, what balance is and how you balance things out. Um, but there was a liberation about this that I didn't have to um, find the balance in quite the same way. That's not to say I just went off and wandered off and made things up. I mean, you mentioned the violence and... Um, with my publishers, we, we, some of it, and I, you know, I warn you, but I don't apologize for it. Some, there is some, you know, some 
tough stuff in mm. there. And sexual violence as well. Uh, and sexual violence, and sexual violence yeah. um, which is difficult because I'm a man writing about it and, and it, it, it happens to a woman. And my publisher, who's a woman, an amazing woman called Hannah Knowles, made me think very hard about whether I wanted to include it. And um, all I would say is I have seen all of it. I never saw it all in one place in one afternoon or whatever, but there's nothing in this book that I've not witnessed. And even the sexual violence, I've been so close to it um, that I felt I could write it with, with, with some uh, authority. Mm. I just want to mention one very strange minor part of the book that fascinated me, which is the, the Ponte Tower. Uh, which is this, this extraordinary uh, tower block that, that towers over, over Johannesburg uh, that, that is very important in the early stages of, yeah. of the book uh, that I think was built as kind of the ultimate in white middle-class Johannesburg Gosh, yeah. accommodations. It's, it's called Ponte, Ponte City. Ponte City. Ponte City it's called. And it's, um, it's like a great big tube. Uh, I think it's, I don't know, 30 stories high or 57, something. 57, 57, yeah, 57, yeah, 57, yeah, 57. there you go. Is that in the book? I think so, yeah. <laughs> so here's, not, a, here's an interview who's actually read the book. If not, I looked at Wikipedia, but I think it was 57. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was, it was, it was Afrikanerdom and apartheid at its most confident. It was a, you know, a middle finger to the rest of the world saying, sod you, you think we're not going to be around? Well, here it is, the most lavish residential block in Africa. And it was. Um, and then slowly... You know, as things started changing, white people moved out into the suburbs, kind of thing that happened in, in America in places like Chicago, Detroit. Um, and Ponte City slowly became the place where the homeless, the migrants, the people without the paperwork, the people who live in the shadowlands, you know, the people who come and clean our toilets and, and iron our shirts and so on, that's where they lived. And the leaks started happening in the building. They couldn't complain about the leaks and the plumbing because if they did, somebody would say, well, where do you live and what's your, where's your permit? So, you know, and then they'd get thrown out. So it, this, this building became a symbol of the decay of, that, of, 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 the, of the old South Africa. And I mean, there was a point, I mean, I wasn't there obviously, but the detritus, I mean, people used to chuck things out of the window and it was like five stories high in the middle, um, uh, apparently. And um, Today, there's some very brave souls. I haven't done it, but my wife Frances and our sons on a holiday did, you can do a tour apparently of um, Ponte City and um, some brave souls are sort of buying it up and no doubt it'll become some sort of chic monument uh, again. But it was an interesting, it was an, I, I can remember as a reporter going there uh, at a, at a, during a, a period of, of xenophobia while I was a reporter there and down in the basement of the building, hearing the, the sounds of a, of a Congolese choir singing hymns when all around them their compatriots were, were being necklaced and, 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 and hurt and, um, and beaten up. Um, so it, it is a symbol, that building, yeah. very potent one. I think you've, you've been working on this book for, for, for a few years before it was, it was published. You, you've talked very openly about your cancer, and I think that, that sort of put it on hold, didn't it, at one, at one it point? It did. So I'd written, um, I can't remember the dates exactly. I mean, I know when I got my cancer 2014. So I had written some um, some draft chapters. And uh, well, the thing about cancer was I, I was very sick. Um, and there wasn't the headspace, really. Um, it was the last thing I could think about. So um, 
I came back to it, I think, in about 2016. Um, you know, dozens and dozens of rounds of chemo, five or six operations, and um, found the energy again. To, but it was almost getting reacquainted, actually. It was quite interesting. So I was saying to myself, what was Lindy thinking here? And, um, you know, what was Kahisa doing? Um, I think it's possibly a written book for it, um, for that period. Um, um, and I finally then, yeah, finished it, I think, in, in 2017, 2018, and, mm. and Canon gave very kindly decided to publish. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, ca cancer is an all-consuming thing, at, at least the kind of cancer that I have. Yeah. I mean, is there now a sense, as you live with it, that actually doing, achieving things, doing extra things beyond your work, reading the news and, and writing the news, actually producing books is... is, is almost a kind of challenge to it, I don't know, a sort it's, of... I was slightly worried about talking about cancer because, uh, not because, I, mean, I, I think we all ought to talk about cancer, because the fact of it is, I'm, I'm sorry to say, you know, in this room, half of us might end up mm. dealing with it in some way or another, so I think we do sh need to talk about it, but the, but the trouble is I think there are as many ways of dealing with cancer and experiencing as there are people who have it and you know you can rail against it and lots of people do or you can go with the flow I mean so I can only speak of what's enabled me to carry on working and so on is and it was hard to do in the first three to six months is I had to um, come to a place of contentment so look at my life and say well you know where am I and I figured out it hadn't been such a bad life after all. And, and um, once I'd got to that place, then it kind of liberated me and freed me to say, actually, do you know what? I'm going to go and ask them whether I can work again. And the BBC was fantastic, and they have, and they've accommodated me. Um, and then I got back to writing this book and, you know, start thinking about other things. Um, the big story you've been reporting, or one of the big stories you've been reporting, but certainly last year the biggest, of course, COVID and the, the, the pandemic. Um, it struck me it was a, an interesting time for the BBC because an organisation that's celebrating its centenary next year that, that is, is battered from many sides at the moment, but it sort of proved the value of the organisation that we needed someone who would report the facts straight. And actually there was a time when the 6 o'clock and the 10 o'clock news were getting audience figures that they hadn't seen in, in 20 years because people wanted to know what was happening and they wanted a fair, balanced and accurate account of that. Uh, well, this brings us back to the point I was making earlier. There might be people in this room who, who think that some of the figures that I have... You know, we haven't... I mean, the truth of it is, when the f figures come out daily, I have, with my team, sometimes, you know... Well, early on in the, in the, in, in the pandemic, you know, Boris, and his, Boris Johnson and his team would have a press conference at five, and I'd give myself till about 5.30 and then I'd have to rewrite. I'd have to start writing. And there's quite a lot of write and there's quite a lot to assess. You know, you've got to, here's what he said. Is it possibly, as you said, the right thing? Is it true? Is it fact-checked and so on? So it became a very difficult thing. What does impartiality mean? What does balance mean? Um, and it's true. I mean, people did come to us at the BBC. I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say we got it right all the time and there will be people in this room, including some of my friends, who will think we might have, maybe we should have depended more 
on Independence Age rather than Sage. I mean, there are choices you make when when you report, um, but 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 you're right. We did find ourselves in a position that that um, I certainly hadn't, you know, in in what 15 years in the studio. Um, in a position where we knew that everything we wrote counted, uh, and and we had had to be had to be really careful uh, about what we said, and and also, I mean, I do remember in two thousand and eight with the financial crisis, when we literally had it in in our power, you know, to start a run on the banks, for example. I mean, there was stuff coming in, and if you broadcast before you knew exactly what it is was going on, you could set things off and. Mm. That was something we were very conscious of with COVID, and we know that, like the panic buying, you know, there wasn't actually ever a shortage of toilet rolls. And mm. what is it about the Brits and toilet rolls? Or, <laughs> or petrol. Or petrol. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I suppose you could also, to go back to the book, make parallels with our with our coverage of, of immigration stories, for example. You know, the, how, how we report on on the people who are crossing the the channel looking for looking for safety looking for safety Look, here there was a, a controversial moment wasn't there a few months back where there was a sort of live live moment on breakfast television with 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 boats being filmed arriving which i think was seen as being a mis a misjudgment but it, it illustrates how how fine those calls are i mean migration interestingly i am a migrant by the way and i'm proud to say it i was not born in this country um but i didn't come here empty-handed i came here with my um, talent, my capacity to work hard. Um, <clears throat> but I accept that there is a debate about immigration. I think every right, country has a right to dis define for itself who comes in and how many comes in. It's how you conduct that debate that, that's, that's, that's really, is that me? Uh, that's really important. Um, and, and migration is one of those things actually that, that, that worries me the way we, we conduct that debate and how ugly it can be and how unkind we can we can we can uh, become about it and and here's where balance and facts are important to my mind and i've read a lot about it because my second book a home from home was about multiculturalism and what it really meant in our country to my mind and i think the facts um, support me immigration is a good thing on a national scale in terms of the economy um, in terms of diverse, lots of, lots of things, but if you just strip it down to the economy, our economy grows faster because of migration. On a local scale, it can be a tough thing. I suspect very few of us in this room live in the kind of places where a sudden influx of migrants um, means that there, it's much harder to get, a, get, a, get a, um, an appointment at a GP surgery or whatever or where indeed, where, where pay is undercut. I mean, that's going on now with the road haul and stuff. So and that, that's what I mean, it's such a difficult issue for something like the BBC to deal with. Because on the one hand, clearly there's a, there's, a, there's a national picture, which is of a good thing, but how do, we, how do we get underneath that on the regional level? And if I'm honest about it, um, I think if we want, and I don't want to get into this because it was such a divisive period, but five, six years back, did organisations like the BBC, did people like us in our, you know, I think, you, you know, you're, you're like me, um, did we really know what people, our, our fellow Brits were thinking about and feeling, you know, and, and when we portray some people as little Englanders and racists and so on, is that true? Mm. 
You know, is that factual? What else is worrying them about it? And in, in, in my book, A Home From Home, uh, I tried to look at this. I mean, I, I, it, was, it was a look at Britain, did I? And I, and I went to, to a school in Tower Hamlets, which is a borough of London, and where literally, you know, what had been a, a school, a sort of largely white school, in the space of about eight years became a, a Bengali school where the, the language of the playground was Bengali and I was with one white child and talking to um, his mum. And it was quite interesting because there were lots of mums like her who kind of wanted to set, put their hand up and say, was this what was meant to happen? That, that, that you know, my son can't have a sleepover because we've got a dog and some of the Muslim kids think dogs are dirty. All kinds of issues, you know. And there was a portion of the left, the portion of the liberal, who, who, who shut that debate down and said, oh, that's racist. It wasn't racist. It was just trying to come to terms with change that was happening very quickly. Um, <clears throat> and, I mean, the, the problem with TV news, it's, 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 a, it's an immediate medium. It, as I tried to say to you, it, it unfolds in a matter of hours every it's day. Blunt it's a blunt instrument. instrument, exactly. Yeah. And it's quite hard to tell that story, which is why I tried to tell it in a book. I'm not, I'm not asking you to, to, to be the spokesman to defend the BBC, but there's one very interesting tiny bit of the book where you, one of the characters in the, the group of four, uh, uh, <coughs> two boys, works for SABC, uh, the South African state broadcaster, which was modelled <coughs> originally on, on the BBC, became a sort of tool of, of, of the white South Africa. <coughs> then had again, like South Africa, a period of kind of renaissance um, after the changes. Now has, <coughs> uh, and this is almost more frightening, now has become kind of a bit of an irrelevance, hasn't it? Totally. I mean, it's, um, <coughs> it's just become a mouthpiece yeah. for the government. I mean, it, luckily, I mean, uh, we are definitely not that. I think you'll agree, Perthrock, the BBC. Cool. I mean, it's quite an interesting thing, actually, travelling around the world, trying to describe to people what the BBC and how it can be independent, because as you know, our chair is appointed by, by, by the, the government, um, certainly has an influence over it. And um, I do worry about, you know, I, I think, you know, it is under assault, the BBC, and um, uh, we're moving into a period where uh, around the world, um, and those people who know America know what it's like, where, where news, the, 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 the kind of the dividing line between comment and opinion and, and news and fact has just got, become totally blurred. So um, I think we all of us need to, and not just because I work for it and not because Petrov works for it, cherish this thing that we've got. I mean, the point is, if there's lots of places I've been to actually where they, they, they would like something like the BBC, you couldn't invent it mm. now. It just wouldn't wash. You couldn't set up a media organisation that takes money from just about every household in the land. It is one of the few, along with the NHS, I think, that one of the truly communal things we do in this country, where we come together and say, actually, if we all put some money in, what comes out is, is a good thing. Um, and, and long may it last. And it feels, you know, here's an organisation that makes programmes for Cornwall, that has symphony orchestras, that has one of the last proper news bureaus in South Africa, that, that, that has a broadcast in 28 languages or something. I mean, it's unwieldy, isn't it, in many ways? Oh, so no, it's and a messy old business. Yeah. I don't, we don't always get it right. But, you know, just take recently, I mean, 
you know, with the fall of Kabul, you know, Secunda Kamani with the Taliban, uh, Yugita Lamai um, with, 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 um, in, in, in Kabul. And on one evening, the poor cameraman, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but both Yugita and Secunda couldn't get to a thing, and the poor cameraman had to report. Had yeah. to report, and he yeah. did. You know, yeah. this is the BBC. We have people who live, I mean, who work for us, who are paid for us, who, who live in the place. They're not, you know, people like me who were, who were kind of parachuted in. I mean, in my defence, I would say that because of my, my own life history, I always had one foot in the poor world. Uh, but, but, you know, we have an authority, I think, we can bring to our, certainly to our international reporting because mm. we're of the place quite often. Mm. Let's open the, the floor for questions. I suspect there'll be uh, lots. Who would... Yes, gentleman there in the could check we, show. Yeah. Could we just uh, wait till oh, the microphone's there? Oh, we've got so the microphone working. Excellent. Yes, we, we didn't have that yesterday, so we'll <laughs> get a microphone down you. Third row from the front here, gentleman in the check, blue check shirt. Thank you very much for a brilliant talk. I find your analogy of civilization with within very interesting because Maurice Castells, who wrote the rich lecture in 1966, said the reason why we all queue for bread because there's six people on the queue and 10 loaves of bread. If there are three loaves of bread, are we going to queue? And I found that very fascinating. And look at the panic buying in pandemic. Look today, panic buying in petrol. So civilization is very way within. And then go back to what you said about the black person with a white brain. When you said that, my wife sitting next to me and nudged me. But the classic insult you can give a black man is calling coconut. Yeah. He's white inside and he's black outside. And that's the ultimate thing. And what people don't realize is that racism is a two-way traffic. It was dominant for a while because they, they had economic dominance. Now that the new walls are getting very comfortable, the racism is the other way. I'm originally from Nigeria. My family tells me, oh, that's the way the white people do it. I said, well, hang on a minute. If a white man said that, you would say they're me racist. Oh yes, but I can say that, they can say it. So it's a very, it's very interesting, but what I live in hope, because my son went to Durham, and he, he was coming so home. So <laughs> He was coming home with all sort of brands of color, obviously there, mixed race and all that, and I'll just try to ask you a question on two things to say. I live in hope, because you mentioned that in your reading, that our generation, the next generation is going to change, things will be better, or do you think I'm just a dreamer? No, I don't think you're a dreamer, actually. And I, and I, I um, yeah, my, my wife is white and, and, and she's as English as they come. Um, and our sons are mixed heritage and they're completely comfortable in their own skin and they've got friends. I, 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 it's not to say that there aren't enough people around who are susceptible to the kind of thing I was saying about what politicians can do. Um, but, but no, I, th I, th I think, you know, we're, we are, we're, we're getting there as a multicultural nation. I mean, I sometimes wonder, I mean, the reason I wrote that book is, I mean, how many of us in this tent today can truly say we know someone of a different color and who's, who we're intimate with and, you know, we're, we're still quite separate in many ways and that's to do with class, but it is to do with race as, as well. But I think those things are, are breaking down. I mean, the thing about, um, being called a coconut, I mean, which, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I have I haven't talked about it much, but obviously I came here with a different accent, I came here with a different colour skin, and I've been called all those things, and um, people kind of assume that because I sound the way I do, that somehow 
I'm different. And it's the thing I hate most, and say, oh, but you're different, George. I'm not actually. I am an immigrant. And the reason I've done, have the accent I have is like all immigrants, we have to find a pathway through, through uh, you know, the torrents of, of, of a river that's sometimes flowing in, in, in the opposite direction. And one way to do that is to adopt as best we can, in my case, and I don't know where it came from, none of my friends in the, 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 the direct grant school I went to in Portsmouth speak like me, but to find an accent that, is, that has helped me navigate through this country. And, and what's interesting about race in this country is that class trumps race. And really interestingly, so for years, even while I was, and there's a wonderful, wonderful thing about it, this country. I mean, I was reporting for the BBC with a Sri Lankan passport till 1993. <laughs> and um, I used to get sent off on trips. And uh, we'd, we'd come back, and of course my crew would all sort of zoom off through the EU queue, and, <laughs> and I'd be there with the Algerians <clears throat> and the Bangladeshis and you know, all of us slightly sweaty, you know, wondering what the immigration official would say. Um, <clears throat> and I could see in front of me, people are getting a hard time from the immigration officers. And I'd turn up at the desk and I would just say, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and that one word, and the immigration, the, the whole demeanor changed. Oh, hello, sir, welcome back. <laughs> you know, it was class. So maybe that's why I've got it, you know, so I've been lucky. I've been able to, you know, I don't know what class I am, but, but so it's, it's a complicated business, this, this thing. Thank you for your question. Yeah, thank you. Very interesting. Uh, who would like to go next? Yes, over there. Panama hat. Um, you touched on the, the banality of some aspects, perhaps, of the 6 o'clock news. And one of the things that I picked up... Did I say banality? I certainly don't think that word was used. <laughs> and one of the things I picked up on recently is that there must be something like five to ten minutes in which you don't report on what people do or think, but you're asking questions about what people feel. And often those questions are so self-evident in terms of the response you're going to get, it feels like a waste of time. So you might say, you might have a question like, what's it like to lose your uncle to COVID, etc.? And you sort of think, what are the BBC doing, spending time asking people these questions? So you're referring to those bits of our reports where, say, I don't know what, Fergus Walsh might go and talk to a family. Um, well, I'll tell you why it happens. I mean, you clearly don't like us doing it, but I'll tell you why we do it. Because we do a lot of research about what it is our audiences want and what they feel, and what they think about the BBC and the way it reports. And sometimes they want to see themselves reflected, and the anguish, and the hurt, and the emotion, and the challenge of what they're going through reflected in a news bulletin, rather than have it mediated through Boris Johnson, and Keir Starmer, and Priti Patel, and all the other people we could go to and interview. And that's why we do it. Now, you don't like it. Um, um, our sense of it is, and I, I promise you, we, we talk about this almost on a weekly basis, and we have lots of ways of researching our audiences, that, that audiences want to see some of their experience reflected back. And if all we did was that, go around asking the general public what they thought of COVID, and didn't bring you 
some of the brilliant reporting of, of, of um, Hugh Pym, uh, Fergus Walsh, Ed Thomas, these people who've, who, who've done things, then, then we would, I think, um, be remiss. But we don't do that. Um, so I, I think um, I, I accept that you're unhappy. I don't think you're right. <laughs> and I think, I think, I mean, some of that extraordinary reporting you mentioned in hospitals that, that Fergus Walsh and, and, and Hugh Pym did that was revelatory and did certainly change how people saw what this disease was doing and how the NHS was reflecting that. An element of that had to be the personal opinions and the feelings of the staff in the hospital. Exactly. I mean, where did Clap for Carers come from? I mean, for, you know, the NHS have been around. These, these nurses actually have been doing this kind of thing for, for decades, I mean, ever since it started off. But suddenly we had a window into them. We weren't just asking them, what drug are you putting in to this person? We, Fergus said to them, how do you feel when you put this drug into this person? And I think that is a relevant question, actually. Um, how, how does it feel to be the only person to be there to hold the hand of a person who is about to go into a ventilator? And when you put somebody in a ventilator, you have to say to them, there's a 50-50 chance. How does it feel to be that person to hold a hand and say, we're going to put you on this machine, we're going to do it as, as, as safely um, and as painlessly as we can for you? But you may not wake up. Well, I think mm. I think that's an important thing to do. Mm. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, another two, time for one or two more, I think. Yes. Where are the women? Yes. <laughs> it's all men. That's a, a very BBC question. Sorry, my wife. <laughs> Sorry, my wife couldn't get a ticket. Uh, You're asking <laughs> on her behalf. Um, I, I, George, I, I read your, your your latest book, the one you've been talking about, particularly a few months ago now. And I forget whether it's set in a particular, well, not time period, but a particular decade. Has the situation that you describe, when you said the events were not completely conjured out of nowhere, does it reflect the South Africa of today? I, I do. Uh, the one bit of it, yes, in other words, the, the, the betrayal of, of freedom, um, I, I think it does reflect South Africa today. Um, I think those issues about identity, you know, what is it to be an African? So one of the things, for example, is Lindy, this, this the daughter of white South Africans who exiled to Britain. Um, her, her parents sit in London and call themselves Africans. And growing up as a, as a, as a sort of British child now, she's, what a bloody cheek. You know, my parents going around calling them Africans. How are they Africans? They're not Africans, they're white. And they, and they left. And... Um, she turns up back in South Africa. She's sent there. She's in conflict resolution, and she's talking to the to the taxi driver. And he says, "Oh, the taxi driver, are you here on holiday?" And she says, "No, no, no, my family thing. And I was born here." And he just says, "Welcome home, ma'am." Um, and it, it, you know, it, and 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 that's about that's about identity, and that's still the case. You know that I wanted to get into that that Africa. You know. It, 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 you don't have to earn being an African. You have to earn whether you're a good African or a bad African, but it's an accident of birth. And things like that, I mean, this debate is still going on in South Africa, what it takes, you know, are white people indeed Africans or the ones with English passports, are they not quite, and, and so on. So I did want to uh, get into that. So I think in lots of ways, the book does reflect exactly what's happening. The only thing I would say is that in terms of land purchase, the new colonialism, Lots of what's happening in South Africa is being done on a, 
um, kind of willing buyer, willing purchase, uh, purchaser, um, seller, willing buyer, willing seller basis. Whereas, I mean, there are parts of Africa where it's a much more nefarious business and, and there's some really, really dodgy deals. But I, I, as I say, I set it in South Africa. It's a, it's a country I know very well, but, but in every other way, I think it does reflect. And as I say, you only got to wind the tape back six weeks, eight weeks. And we saw the kind, some of the kind of violence that I described in the book. And you, you talk about, you sort of intimate these cycles of hope that happen across the continent. I mean, you mentioned the, the great men of, 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 and they were all men, Mandela obviously, but Kenyatta in his earlier days, Nairi, Nkrumah. You don't say this, but possibly you can even make this case for Robert Mugabe in his, in his very early years, that there was hope and there was the sense that good was going to come out of this. Do you think there's any hope now? Do you think there's I, reasons I, to be optimis optimistic about South Africa? I do, because in South Africa's case, I am optimistic because there is still civic society there. The courts still work. I mean, you know, an African president was just put in jail for contempt of court. I mean, you know, let's remember that. That's quite a thing, actually. Um, so so I, I am hopeful in South Africa. More, more generally, um, when I started off as a reporter in, 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 um, in the 80s, there were more wars than there were elections. Um, um, in, in, in Sudan, there was a period when uh, a young woman had a greater chance of dying in, in childbirth, uh, giving, giving birth to a child, than she did of going to secondary school. And these things are changing, actually, so th th there is hope. I mean, it's glacial. It's not ha happening quickly enough. And I'm not on the Mugabe thing, Petrock, and I, I'm sorry to say this. Well, firstly, let me say, I mean, he, he was a nasty man and he ended up, you know, doing some terrible things and it happened quite quickly. But, you know, this was a man who was told while in jail he couldn't go and bury his own son. That was a kind of cruelty, wasn't it? Would the edifices of Rhodesian white supremacy have, have, have collapsed if Robert Mugabe was allowed to go and bury his son. There were lots of cruelties along the way. And again, you know, there's the fact of Mugabe being all the things he was, and there's the truth, the legacy of hurt, the legacy of discrimination, the legacy of unkindness. These things, you know, you can sometimes only get into in, 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 in fiction. And yes, actually, this man, however he was portrayed, and the Rhodesian War, by the way, was an ugly war, um, unlike South Africa, which never really came to a war. There was a war in Rhodesia. But this man, like Kenyatta, you know, remember the Mahama Rebellion, what, what British forces were doing, colonialists were doing to Kenyans, to black Kenyans, the torture and so on. Um, Kenyatta made a reconciliation speech. Mugabe made a reconciliation speech on that day of Independence Day in 1980. And white farmers who'd packed their buckies and were about to head for Bite Bridge or Messina, head for the border, turned it around. And I've got to say this, I don't think white people have been quick enough to accept the responsibility that they too had to change and change quite quickly. You know, it, it cost Mandela, actually, quite a lot to be the reconciler. Remember, this is a man who invented the armed struggle. We like to think of Nelson Mandela as the saint. He came after so many unkindnesses 
he came to the conclusion that the AK-47 was the thing. And it, and it cost him political capital. Where are the white people who are expending their political capital? And we have to face that again, you know, because with this climate change, you know, in Paris, we promised 100 billion a year. Did it turn up? No. God knows what we're going to promise this November mm. in Glasgow, COP26. Will we live up? Who is expending the capital? So no wonder there is sometimes a reaction and a bitterness mm. that turns into bad government. And I'm not condoning the bad government because the people who suffer are not us, but, 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 but South Africans and Zimbabweans and, and Congolese and so on. But understand it for what it is. It's a two-way street, this thing. Final, final question, because I think we're, we're, we're pretty much out of time. But uh, has this unleashed something in you? Are we now going to see another novel? Um, if I'm honest, Petrock, because um, I'm still on chemo and, and stuff, um, I'd like to do it. I've, I've got to find the energy, mm. basically. Um, and I think I would like to write something more perhaps more personal, something to do with my... The thing I sort of said, and you will, if I can call you my Nigerian friend, you will understand the way people like us have had to navigate our way through white society, um, you know, the culture clashes and so on, um, to try and get into that. So in other words, a sort of fictional version, perhaps even, of, of, of what I wrote in, in A Home From Home, my book on multiculturalism. But the other thing I've often wondered is... Um, I'd like you, my readers, if, if there is another book, to know what I really think about all the things I've reported on um, and what I wish I could have said. So not the news at six. Um, so that's sort of kind of around in my head. But as I say, you... Well, I think uh, that's a yes. I've got to find the energy. Yeah. And I'm just relishing at the moment being around, really, and yeah. um, enjoying life. Well, it's been great talking. George Allagai, ladies and gentlemen.